Well, it's good to see everybody. If you have a Bible, Mark's Gospel, chapter 15 is where we're at. It's page 721 and 22 in our church Bibles. We're going to return to our studies in Mark, um, beginning in verse 15. Mark chapter 15, verse 15. Let's hear the word of the Lord. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The soldiers led Jesus away into the palace, that is the praetorium, and called together the whole company of soldiers. They put a purple robe on him, then twisted together a crown of thorns and set it on him. And they began to call out to him. Hail, King of the Jews. Again and again, they struck him on the head with a staff and spit on him. Falling on their knees, they paid homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they took off the purple robe and put on his own clothes on him. Then they led him out to crucify him. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. They brought Jesus to the palace called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. Then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The written notice of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him, that would be the two robbers at this time, also heaped insults on him. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's, let's pray together, please. Father, the, the help needed to teach this text is enormous. These are such sacred moments in the life of Christ our King. Therefore, I need you, please, to help me. I need you to take pity on me and all of us. As your word uncovers us and reveals your son to us, may we learn afresh just who Jesus is and what he's come to do and then in turn be given grace to live in the light of his truth. Thank you, Father, for hearing our prayer and and for Jesus' sake, please, please answer favorably to it. Amen. I'm wondering, have you ever wondered, perhaps maybe thought about, why so many songs in every genre of music are about love. This week I learned that some of the best estimates say of the 97 million songs which were written and released, 60% of them are love, and songs that are on the top of the Billboard Top 100 songs, uh, they are about love. And some of the songs can bring a person to tears, and some of the songs can really excite the heart because Romantic love, right, is absolutely beautiful. And some of the songs, well, we shouldn't even mention. 
Now, I'm pretty sure that in light of this, understanding I know that there's different forms of love, the reality is that we human beings need love. It's terrible to think that we, in a moment in our life, are not loved. And it's terrible to feel unloved. Can anybody find me somebody to love? It's a very popular song by Freddie Mercury. It actually has the lines, I get down on my knees and I start to pray till the tears run down from my eyes. Lord, somebody, somebody, oh, somebody, please, can anybody find me somebody to love? Now, surely it is the cry of the human heart to be loved. And I know that we are willing to accept all kinds of substitutes, even sometimes like religious substitutes to fill that void. Regardless, what we have here in these verses is the outpouring, and please listen carefully, of the highest form, the most satisfying form of love there is. And everybody needs this love. Everybody's destiny depends on this love. And only this love can give a person rest. And the giving of this love is accomplished by only one man. It is the God-man Christ Jesus. He is the source of this. And this love is offered to everyone. And this love is unbreakable. It is unmeasurable. It is unchanging. It swallows up hate. This love is not dictated by our behavior. Therefore, it's not fickle. Human love, that's fickle. It is not ruined by our own self-assessments, whether they be too high or too low. And it's certainly not ruined by the assessments of others on us. And this love, which has so many promises attached to it, has no lapses at all in its intensity. So if you like, there's no brownouts in this love. Therefore, this love is never to be measured by our feelings. It is never to be measured by our station in life, our circumstances, our material possessions, our wealth, our health, our giftedness, our personal achievements, our marriages, health, our family dynamics. No, this love is divine. This is a no-condition love. This love is exactly what we need in light of who we are. Because this love is the infinite it's being expressed in the infinite sacrificial love of Christ towards sinners in his death so that God's justice can be completely satisfied and God's holiness unaltered. In other words, there is no lowering of God's standards in order that a person can enjoy God's love and apply God's promises because in this love, access to God and a person's standing with God is the same for all in Christ, only because of Christ. As Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, gives us the very righteousness of God. And because of his love, it makes sense. We are all, as Christians, equally holy before God. Equally valued. And because of Jesus, God neither sees our sins nor counts our sins, but forgives them and he covers them. There's a song by Marvin Gaye, You are all I need to get by. That's this. So even though the entire human race by nature, we cannot love God back, Ephesians 2, we hate God. We want nothing to do with God. We are still given, we're still offered this love, which is why this is all so staggering. 
Because what is taking place in these verses that we've read and in the story that we've been holding to, this last week of Christ's life, which began around Mark 12, is that all these verses ought to fill our minds with horror and a bit of shame because we are them. We just sang the song. It was my sin that held you there. I was in the crowd. But it equally, if you're Christian, it should quiet us in this love. I don't know anything other than this love, Calvary love, which will quiet the human soul. So we ought to be quiet in his love, and we ought to be lost in wonder and reverence about the very nature of God. Because this is what I mean. All the events of the cross was actually the plan of God. Everything we just read and all the the difficulty of it. God's plan, Romans 8, 32, that he, God, God, did not spare his own son, but gave him up, delivered him up for us all. That's love, Acts 2, 42. Christ was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. More love, Acts 4, 28. They did, God, what your power, this is the prayer of the church, what your power, God, and your will, God, had decided beforehand should happen. To quote Drake, the singer, God's plan. Why? Why this plan? Let's quote John. We quoted Drake. We better quote John. Because God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in this son will not perish but have eternal life. So there is to be no vagueness in this true story. God, acting through the instruments of men, is loving you and I, and we ought to let these two truths stand side by side and basically marvel at our God. And when we think deeply, to know these sufferings were voluntarily being endured by Christ, being delivered over to these sinful people by God his Father, then the biblical witness of divine sovereignty And human responsibility, that is a marvel. Listen to J.I. Packard. To know nothing happens in God's world apart from God's will may frighten the godless. But it stabilizes the saint. So we ought to let God be wiser than man here. Why would God do such a thing? Why would God do such a thing to his son? Is he still that way? Paul writes, Ephesians 3.19, this is a prayer. And the love of Christ, which surpasses knowledge. In other words, God's love in Christ, in his suffering and death. Because every time Paul says in Christ and you read that, you think gospel. God's love in Christ and his suffering and death for us is so massive that it cannot be consumed by the human mind nor nor human experience in its fullness. I hope you get that. This is a terrible example, but it's the only one I could think of. We're a glass. And God's love in Christ is the water, and the water is being poured into the glass, and it doesn't stop like halfway, it doesn't stop three quarters, it doesn't even stop at the very tippy tip, it just keeps on overflowing and overflowing. As long as you're in this body, and for all eternity, remember the hymn that we quote a lot, for the love of God is broader than the measures of our mind. We haven't even touched the hem of the garment of the love of God on our best day. Romans 5, 5, in Christ, God has poured out his love for us. In Christ, gospel, suffering and death, resurrection, ascension of Jesus Christ. God has poured out his love for us. And by the way, that's written in the passive perfect indicative. And the only reason why I want to tell you that is I get to tell you what it means. It means a past completed action. That's the cross 
with permanent results. The love of God as a reality for her subjects, his subjects, you and I, the Christian. In other words, Christ's love, God's love at the cross and all of its benefits will never, never, ever, ever cease to overflow to his own. So all the irony that Mark keeps pointing us to, that no one here in this story is loving Christ, that, that, that there's a wholesale universal rejection of Jesus Christ, and, and we are being represented in that. By nature, we're on the wrong side. So not the disciples, not Judas, not Peter, not the religious leaders, not the governing officials, not even the crowds. Because two weeks ago, we learned that the collaboration of the crowds was simply the amplification of our fallenness and our brokenness. The easiest decision in the world. Barabbas, a a tried criminal, maybe even a murderer, and Jesus, who Pilate says, you see that in verse 14, chapter, chapter 15, verse 14? Pilate says he's guiltless. Who's it gonna be? A guilty guy? Our Jesus. The irony. Another picture of the gospel. So I can say with absolute certainty that I am Barabbas every day. I know guilt every day. But thank God that I'm also in Christ. That means I know his love every day because of his grace given to me in Jesus. So verse 15, I hope your Bible's open and wanting to satisfy the crowds. Pilate takes the line of least resistance, which usually leads downward. And yet Pilate is an instrument of God so that Jesus can satisfy God's wrath forever on our sin. And in that affirm the absolute, unchanging, unceasing love of God for sinners like you and I, period. Because that's how you know God loves you. So you could lose everything or you could have everything. They are not the ultimate sign that somehow in the loss, God stopped loving you or in the increase, God really, really, really loves you. And it's important for me to tell you that. Because often people tell you that the center of God's will is some beautiful blessed paradise on earth and everything's going right and money's right and life is right and you're behaving right and life is a breeze. There you go, you saint. However, in Jesus, who is perfectly in the center of the will of God like no one has ever been at the center of the will of God, you find none of this. Not in this part of his story. Now, verse 16 tells me that that this would be the fifth manhandling and beating that Jesus would have had in just a few hours. So we have two points, mockery and cruelty, followed by majesty and irony. So verse 15, the implications there, many of us know Jesus' back was tied to some kind of bar. It's laid bare. He's whipped by, the gar- by a guard. This is not verse 16 yet. This is still verse 15. The whip, as again, some of you know, pieces of bone, pieces of metal, So every time he was whipped, chunks of skin, probably chunks of flesh, were being just torn from the precious body of Jesus Christ. Then come the soldiers, verse 16. Literally, it could read, they take him to meet his death in the praetorium. And the praetorium was probably some high official, maybe Herod. Think of backyard or front yard so that he could sit and watch this beat down. And there, literally, excuse me, all hell breaks loose. There's somewhere between 200 and 600 soldiers, Roman soldiers, professionals, who begin their mockery and their cruelty. And it's amazing to me that such well-trained soldiers can become so unhinged. I mean, these are men who have committed themselves to the highest form of physical and personal discipline. 
and yet they are engaged in some of the grossest forms of inhumanity. This is peculiar, again, at least to me. They were trained to be under control, under self-control, under physical uh, control, mental, emotional control. So sometimes when you see the movies, you know, they're all gruffy and bearded and, you know, they're drinking wine. Don't think that way. Think historically. These are Roman soldiers. They were meant to be disciplined men. And in this scenario, one man against two to six hundred, they unleash some of the most repulsive and sickening parts of our common humanity on a man who's already been beaten to a bloody pulp at least four times. He has no possibility of self-defense. And we can be sure that when that beating was taking place, Jesus was not looking with eyes of revenge like, you guys don't know who I am, and you just wait. One day I'm going to get even with you, and the roles are going to reverse. He had none of that. None of that. So I want you to consider the mockery. Verse 17, oh, you're a king? Well, every king should at least look like a king. We can help you. Here's a robe. Put it on. It's the color of royalty. Verse 17b, here's a crown. Put it on. No, we'll put it on. It may hurt a bit. It may twist your face as we drive the thorns in your head. You might find that blood will get into your eyes and into your mouth as you are being um, considered royalty. But every king needs a crown. And every king should have a people. Verse 18, they began to call out him. Something they would say to Caesar. Ava Caesar. Hail Caesar. Hail king of the Jews. Then look at verse 19. Like something out of a, a Quentin Tarantino movie. Again and again they strike him on the head. With a staff. Again and again spit on him. And then they knelt before him in the mockery of worship. And you know, Jesus could have called 10,000 angels when they arrested him in the garden and he steps forward. Remember, John says that they fell back because of his majesty and power. So we ought not to see Jesus as a helpless victim here. Jesus is not looking for our sympathy. He's not looking for our pity. Remember, he was on the Via Della Rosa. He was, he was carrying the cross for a time and the, and the widows came weeping. And oh, Jesus, and he says, stop that. Don't, don't do that. So what is he doing here? Why is he enduring all this? Why is he not fighting back? Why is he not exercising his rights? He could. Why? Because Jesus loves sinners. Because Jesus loves to save sinners. Theologians will speak of the twofold obedience of Christ. His active obedience and his passive obedience. So his active obedience was his always keeping the moral law of God perfectly, inwardly, outwardly, every time. He always said the right thing. He always did the right thing. But his passive obedience is something that we might be uncomfortable with. But his passive obedience is his willingly, passively, to just take it all in. Receive the punishment for sinners in order that sinners can become believers who are saints, right? 1 Corinthians 1.30. Because of this act in Christ, we're given the wisdom and the righteousness and the sanctification and the redemption that Christ himself possesses. Not that we have it on our own, but we have it in our union with Christ. So why is he not fighting back? Because most of us will be honest and say, you know what? I think I might. If not like this way, this way. He's not fighting back. Because Christ will not liberate himself from this bloody, shameful beatdown by the Roman soldiers in order that all of us can be liberated from our sins. 
It was the only way. There is no other way. This is love. This is real, self-abnegating, Calvary, agape, God love. That's why Augustine said the cross is the pulpit of God's love. And it does not call for our sympathy. It just calls for a response. Have you responded? Have you responded to Jesus? Please look down at verse 20. And how Mark just moves on. And when they had mocked him. What's that all about? So when, when people are unkind to other people. There, there's only so many things you can say. There's only so many names you can call. There's only so many bad things you can do before it runs out of steam. And eventually, the mockery and the, and the teasing and the jeering and the sneering will have to stop. Either because you're bored or, or you're jaded or you're tired or perhaps you are ashamed. Remember the song, Bearing Shame and Scoffing Rude, In My Place Condemned Christ Stood. Listen to William Simington, 19th century pastor. Pastor. In every case, Christ suffered for us, never for himself. Not one throb of pain did he feel. Not one pain of sorrow did he experience. Not one sigh of anguish did he have. Not one tear of grief did he shed for himself. Listen to this. This is a beautiful sentence. All of his sufferings were substitutionary. All of his sufferings were substitutionary. He was dehumanized in this way. Remember Isaiah 52, they, they shall see my servant beaten and bloodied, so disfigured, one would scarcely know it was a person standing there, a prophecy about Christ in this scene. Jesus was so dehumanized so we could become truly human, truly human the way God intended us to be. So again, verse 20, they take off his clothes, which means Jesus is naked for a time in front of these men. I mean, who wants that? It's more shame. They put his clothes back on and they lead him to the cross. And all through this, you just see just, Jesus is just absorbing all this. Not defending himself. All the mockery and the cruelty as if he himself were actually guilty. And then, almost like Mark pushes a button, just a brief button, verse 21, from all this craziness, he tells us, look down please, verse 21, that the soldiers forced, and that's like an animal being forced to slaughter, they grabbed Simon of Cyrene, probably from Libya. And the part of the cross that Jesus was holding, some 20 to 40 pounds, wasn't the whole thing, just the cross beam, because Jesus, by the way, is too weak to carry himself. Can I just tell you, I love that part, because this is not like he-man Christianity, you know, he went all the way and he did it all right. No, too weak. Physically too weak. And the fact that Mark mentions Simon and then tells us, you see those two names, children of Alexander and Rufus? Scholars tell us that these two young men, because the gospel, this gospel was written first for the church in Rome, and Rufus was mentioned in the letter, at least the name Rufus was, meaning that the story of their conversion of Alexander and Rufus was probably so common that only their names were needed. And if that's true, just think it through. If that's true, this means at one of the weakest moments in, in the life of Jesus Christ, can't even carry his own cra- cross. He's just a blob of a man. Jesus is like planting the seeds of his grace in one home and in one family. 
because he lives to love and he lives to save. And, and weakness in the kingdom is actually strength, he tells himself. It's never human strength. But it's always weakness. That's why I warn you, the, the, the bulk yourself up Christianity, it is lifeless, it is a lie, it's not very attractive, and it will not give you rest. Because it always puts your eye on you. And it never takes your eye to Christ. Look what you're not doing now. Instead of look what Christ has done for you once and for all. We need to move along, but the mockery and cruelty doesn't end with the soldiers. Verse 29, the people passing by, the crowds. Verse 30, the chief priests and the teachers of the law. Even verse 32b, the two robbers on the right and left of Jesus, they heap insults at him. And as you read this, don't you want to ask the question, what does it say about our humanity that we would mock a, a dying, almost dead man? I mean, mockery and cruelty is common humanity. It's probably, the, to me, the lowest brain form of speech because it comes so easy. I mean, it, the words just flow out like wine when I'm mocking a person. There's no hiccups, there's no pauses. You say, what do you hate about them? You say, what do you love about them? I wrote on the top of my Bible here, uh, Romans 15, 3. This is what it says. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. You know what that means? It means any time, every time we, me, every time I insult somebody, mock, scorn, belittle another believer, person, it falls on my Savior. It's like I was actually mocking, insulting Jesus Christ. God forgive us. Mockery, And cruelty, and remember, none of this was unexpected. All of this was predicted. Three times Jesus said these things were going to happen. But all of it is under the control of God. And isn't it interesting how Jesus will make his first throne a cross? Finally, then, majesty and irony. Majesty because even in this hour of deep humiliation, bodily exposure, of being utterly alone, the insults and, and the mockery in his life ebbing away, not softly. This is a violent death. The nature of a Roman crucifixion, we'll talk about it more next time, but, but literally every breath that Jesus takes is a violent breath. It's a fight to breathe. And in all of that, this is his majesty. He refuses to exercise his innocence. He refuses any justifiable, justifiable judgment. He refuses every right that he has. That's majesty. That's Christian majesty. Majesty because as king, he has to remain in control, right? It's the worst thing in the world to lose control publicly in just about anything. Therefore, verse 23, Jesus refuses the wine mixed with myrrh. That was kind of like a drug that was used to medicate the terrible pain of crucifixion. In other words, he will not medicate this pain away, and he's not trying to be a hero here. He has to keep his full faculties. He's going to take the sin of us full, but he's going to quote Scripture from the cross. He's going to pray to the Father from the cross. He's going to arrange care for his mother on the cross, 
and he's going to forgive the foolish mockers on the cross. And he can't be medicated in head, which means he refuses that. I'm not trying to be silly, but I wrote down, what a man, what a man, what a mighty good man. Because if there would have been a justifiable sin committed by Jesus, I think this is where it could have been. This is it. It's all fair, Jesus. Let him have it. Let him have it. It's okay. He won't. Why not? Because he loves. Because he loves to save sinners. This is, this is the Christ in us. This is, the, this is the Christ who we are, and it's so slow for me, who are we, we are being changed into his image. That's majesty. Now the irony. And by irony, I want you to think along these lines. This is like a Greek tragedy. So the person is doing things and saying things, but they have no idea the irony of what is taking place. The reader can see it, but they can't see it, not the character. So for example, verse 17, hey Jesus, remember that? Every king should have a crown. So they shove a crown of thorns in his head. Well, yeah, he's a king, but listen to what Revelation 19:12 says, that he will have many crowns, which suggests that many crowns are the indication that in the first century, in those times, that every time you defeated a king, you got to take his crown. That was custom in the ancient world. And the many crowns of Jesus signifies that he alone is the sovereign ruler of the earth. So his first crown, a thorn, crown of thorns. Now in Revelation 19, he has crowns upon crowns upon crowns. Irony of verse 18 and verse 26, king of the Jews. Oh yeah, he is the king of the Jews. But he's also king of the world. Verse 19, irony as the guards fall on their knees and they pretend to worship him. Remember Philippians 2, 19. There's coming a day that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is is Lord to the glory of the Father. So again, verse 19, this scene will be played out again. But this time the soldiers, they will have to mean what they say. There's no way around that. There's more. Verse 29, those passing insults, shaking their heads, Remember, so you were supposed to destroy the temple and and build it in three days. The irony is, he wasn't talking about a building. He was talking about his body. He was speaking about the resurrection. And Jesus is not going to save himself because he's about saving people, which required that he stay on the cross until he dies. Because the crowds, the priests, see there, verse 32, Messiah, come down from the cross. If you're so great, then why all this mess? Well, it's only if he refuses to save himself that he could save others. So when the crowds and the priests mock him, come down from the cross, with the priest saying, you know, you come down, then we'll believe. Even the priests and the teachers of the law who listened to Jesus teach and saw so many of his miracles, they refused to see that seeing is not believing. Get that? Seeing is not believing. They saw, and they still didn't believe. And the thieves, are you kidding me? You're about to die. Verse 32, they get in on all of this. But what does Luke say? Well, Luke tells us two things, that they were talking just like the Sanhedrin. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. It was all mockery. 
they join in. They're like parrots. They get caught up in the ridicule, even in, in the eminency of death. But then what happens? You can read Luke's gospel today. The very end there, around verse tw- chapter 22, 23. One of the thieves stops. And he was taken captive by God. And in a moment, the thief said to the other thief, why are you doing that? This is a righteous man. We're getting what we deserve. This man's done nothing. And then he looks at Jesus and says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he affirms a belief in Christ, a belief in Christ's future life on the other side of death. And he believes that he's the king and he can do what he says. And then a conversion takes place. And in that moment, listen to me, a a blasphemer in a moment becomes a believer. Again, another apparent moment of weakness for Jesus. He's hanging there. That's how powerful the cross is. That's how vast the love of God is. It's so powerful and it's so vast that those who were in that time blaspheming Jesus to his face, many of those, Acts chapter 2, Pentecost, many of them will be redeemed. Acts chapter 6, verse 7, many of the priests that were in that scenario, later they would come to faith in Jesus Christ. Just by the preaching of the gospel. They didn't see Jesus, they just heard about Jesus, and they were changed. So let me end with this. What, what can separate the Christian from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Mrs. Paul, can trouble? Because surely if you're in trouble, you've done something bad to get in trouble, so you're in trouble because you're trouble, and so should pain, persecution, nakedness, starvation, Danger, this is all Romans 8. Angels, demons, any power. And then Paul says, anything? Well, not if you're in Christ. Nothing at all can separate you from that love. And if you're here and you're not a Christian this morning, God's loving you. What do you need to do? You just need to love him back. You're right, I'm wrong. Jesus is your son. He took a debt that he didn't owe to pay the debt that I owed. Repentance and belief. And then when that happens, you're gonna let Jesus be for you what you cannot be for yourself. You cannot be your own savior. And you can't be your own king. Because there's only one. One of the last lines of Pilgrim's Progress says this. Then Christian said, with a glad heart, he has given me rest by his sorrow and he has given me life by his death. That's the gospel. Let's pray. And as I'm praying, those men who help serve communion, if you would please come forward. Father, your son endured suffering and slander and lies and physical abuse and yet... He didn't open his mouth except to pray for his tormentors and care for his people. Please, God, pour out that same love in our hearts that we will not hate those who hate us, that we will not speak evil of those who speak evil against us, but rather we would love our enemies just as you did, Jesus, because we were once your enemies and now we're your children. In Christ's name we pray.
Amen.